So first up, uh, why should Blaze readers pick up a book about this fictional agency of invasive species? Sure. Um, well, this is a topic that on the one hand it's really important. Um, and I think it's something that periodically bubbles up. I mean, we kind of have this broad-based frustration with bureaucracy but not really an understanding of why bureaucracy is so hard to get rid of and why Washington is so uh, dysfunctional and why you see screw-ups large and small, sometimes really appalling ones like the, the VA uh, scandal we've seen, but sometimes just kind of sillier ones like um, the GSA booking their conferences at these luxury hotels in Las Vegas and uh, uh, sometimes stuff in between like you know the Department of Health and Human Services being unable to build a website. Um, and so yeah, I could have written a very dry textbook, you know, uh, long policy, wonky uh, piece. But I thought, you know, uh, this act idea actually came to me from uh, Dana Perino when she was working at Crown Forum, which is part of Random House, and another editor named Sean Desmond. They, they had this concept of um, telling the story of federal bureaucracy uh, in a fictional tale, you know, about people, kind of following people as they work their way through this process. Um, it is based on a... Federal Interagency Working Group on Invasive Species, and I talk about that a little bit in the introduction, that there are a couple of uh, interagency groups that include uh, you know, eight or nine different federal agencies, including NASA, by the way. Uh, apparently, they're concerned about space weeds of some kind. And um, they, uh, you know, um, uh, it, it seems like a very good metaphor, you know, for the way that federal bureaucracy grows. It's... Uh, Starts out very small, uh, these little pilot programs or initiatives, and uh, you know, before long, somebody's saying that they're drastically underfunded and they get a little bit more money, and uh, before long, they're very difficult uh, to uproot and they spread very quickly. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like this, this very natural metaphor um, of how government uh, has these kinds of programs. They're very hard to get rid of, and uh, much of the frustration of lots of people around them. And it was a way of kind of being funny about it. Uh, folks who read me at uh, uh, National Review Online and a couple other places know that you know I, I try to be I try to be a very jovial guy in my writing because the news isn't always fun um, and yet you know I think if you tell people the world got worse today <laughs> you know people kind of they they stop reading at that point um, so if you can kind of you know even if you have to do this kind of Stephen Colbertish uh, sarcasm of you know great news uh, for the Obama health, you know, for the Minnesota Health Insurance Exchange, the wait times are down from 90 minutes to 75 minutes. Um, so now you only need an hour and 15 minutes to get your phone call answered uh, and have your question answered for, for people who needed help up there. Um, if you kind of say it with a smile or a joke or some humor, uh, you know, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And, um, you know, kind of a way of, of getting people to, to read about something they might not otherwise, you know. There are a lot of people who would never read a book about uh, submarine warfare uh, who read The Hunt for Red October. So, you know, sometimes a good story can be a way of kind of, you know, bring, bringing a topic to people's eyes that they might not otherwise uh, embrace. Mm -hmm. And was there uh, one specific either news event or personal experience that you had that sort of catalyzed your interest in taking on this project, or was it just the general growth of the bureaucracy over your career watching the metastasization of the government. Sure. There were two of them. Um, one is that this is something that Republicans and conservatives have been talking about for a very long time. Uh, certainly going back, you know, I, I begin the book, uh, The Dawn of the Reagan Years. Um, in my lifetime, we'd seen the Reagan uh, Revolution, the Gingrich Revolution, and uh, George W. Bush coming to town, three waves of Republicans. 
Uh, all saying some variation of, we're going to reduce the spending of government, we're going to cut the red tape, we're going to reduce the bureaucracy. And I think it's safe to say that none of them have succeeded the way they wanted to. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, you also had three Democratic administrations, you know, uh, Carter and uh, Clinton and Obama all coming through and pledging government was going to do more for people and it was going to do better for people. It was going to give them free health care and all this great other stuff. And uh, in, all, in those cases, generally, they, they have not accomplished what they've wanted to, and very often a slow, unresponsive, uh, very frustrating bureaucracy that is kind of infected with what I call a culture of complacency uh, gums up the works and, and hinders their, you know, what, what we kind of think is kind of crazy utopian ideas of helping people. Um, they would dispute that notion. I think they would agree that, you know, it, it, if you can't, you know, it's very hard to give people health care if the website doesn't work. You know, it's very hard to say we're doing a great job taking care of veterans if the field offices are sending back false data, you know, and things like that. So, um, so there, good? Yep. Um, and so kind of the other aspect I kind of wanted to get into, and you see this in um, my character of Ava, who's a young woman who comes to work for the, uh, the fake but accurate uh, Agency of Invasive Species. Washington is a wonderful place in some ways, and then a lot of young people come to, you know, come as young adults, either as college students or, or right after college, and they're kind of idealistic, um, and they are generally interested in uh, something, something in the realm of politics. Um, sometimes it's foreign policy, sometimes it's social policy, abortion, or something like that, the environment. Uh, sometimes it's economics and, and you know things like that, but they all care about something very deeply. And they're motivated to try to make the world a better place because of that. And I, I, on the one hand, I really admire that. And I kind of remember being that myself. Uh, I turned 39 next month, so it's been a little bit of a while. But um, you know, in a way, that's one of the things that kind of fuels Washington. On the other hand, most of these people come here, and within a few years, they realize uh, you set out to change the world, and the world changes you. Um, the world doesn't change so easily. Change comes slowly and frustratingly and with setbacks and all that stuff. So it's kind of this, you know, in addition to this kind of, you know, about how Washington works, kind of a hopefully a very human tale about what do you do when, when your original dream of your youth doesn't quite work out the way you want? How do you adapt to um, the world not being the way you were taught and the way you expected? And, um, you know, kind of a bit about growing up and, uh, and trying to, you know, find a way to make a difference in the world when uh, your original plans don't turn out the way you expected. Mm -hmm. I was also just thinking, conversely, this might have the effect of actually making it attractive to go to Washington and sort of like a Wall Street type uh, view, you know, if you think about Humphreys or Wilkins mm -hmm. and the way that they're able to manipulate and, and usurp power. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've, a couple of people have asked me about um, House of Cards and the way that, you know, Kevin Spacey is this, you know, shrewd and utterly ruthless mastermind. Um, my ultimate bureaucrat character, Adam Humphrey, is by no means, uh, he's not killing people, and, you know, you know, quite so nefarious, but he is very often the smartest guy in the room. He very often does figure out some way to kind of manipulate other people into either giving them what he wants or reacting the way he wants or stymieing them when he needs to stymie them. Um, I had set him up to be an affable villain. Um, obviously, on the one hand, he is the bureaucracy personified, um, and so he's obviously the, the, the voice of the status quo, uh, the guy who generally likes things the way they are, and he's very determined to protect his kingdom uh, within the bureaucracy. But at the same time, he's kind of likable. Um, he very much enjoys being a mentor to his, his you know, protege Wilkins. Um, he tries to protect his people, uh, you know, from layoffs and during the government shutdowns and stuff like that. And um, there's kind of a key moment of the 9/11 chapter where um, after 9/11. 
you know, he's human enough to really want to help the country. He's just not capable of imagining any way to help the country that doesn't simultaneously help his own interests. <laughs> so kind of a, an idea of just how twisted he is. His interest and the national interest are, are completely the same in his mind. Uh, there is no split in that Venn diagram there. So, um, so it's, you know, kind of a, I'm hoping to make him a character who, even though he's a bad guy, and you know he's kind of the problem in the system, you kind of admire how he's this, you know, I call him an escape artist of accountability, but he always finds some new way to wriggle out from uh, the consequence that looks like it's bearing down on him. And on the other hand, you have the foil of Nicholas Bader and uh, I hope I get the name right, Caleb Lyons. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. those two characters, talk a little bit about them. And um, in general, were your characters composites? I mean, I almost got a sense with Adam Humphreys, for example, that he was like a Randian kind of villain from Atlas Shrugged. And maybe that's just looking into it too much. But were these oh, composites yeah. and, and, you know, just Yeah, general? I mean, um, in... in um there was an old British television series called Yes Minister and then eventually Yes Prime Minister. And uh, they probably one of the great comedies looking at the way government works of all time. And they had their character um, named uh, Humphrey Appleby uh, was the uh, guy who kind of represented the government status quo in that one. And uh, so I named my character Adam Humphrey kind of to honor that one. Uh, other differences, you know, he's very much the American and much more if he's got a bit of an axe to grind against uh, corporations and things like that. But... Um, uh, in terms of Botter, and I always presume Botter, but you know, if people prefer Bader, that's fine with me. Uh, early on, he's supposed to be this kind of ominous character, so the, uh, if it sounds like Darth Vader, that's fine too. Um, but he's kind of the, the Pat Toomey, Tom Coburn, um, Jeff Flake. This is the, the one guy who's used to focus on spending, focused on pork, and you know, fighting the good fight about this stuff. Um, now I gotta point out, when I first wrote him, I kinda saw him as my, um, you know, noble noble hero fighting this stuff. And I wrote him the way I thought a normal person thinks about bureaucracy and government spending and things like that. I showed a draft to some friends of mine who were not so not as into politics as I am, and they said, Why is this guy such a nut job? Why is he so obsessed with this? Which kind of was a good indicator to me of how skewed my notion of normal is and stuff like that. Um so as time went by, it was kind of he was kind of a useful indicator and then I kind of decided, actually, it's kind of more interesting if he's Captain Ahab and this agency mm-hmm. is his white whale. You know, that, that by golly, of all, the, of all the waste, of all the stuff in the federal government he thinks is, is stupid and silly and, and a waste of money, this agency is going to be the one he's going to get. And he focuses in on it, and it kind of turns into this, you know, year-by-year, decade-by-decade rivalry between these two men who are just determined as all hell to, you know, one guy, you know, determined to preserve his kingdom at all costs and the other guy determined to get rid of it at all, co- at all costs. Um, you mentioned Caleb Lyon, and I kind of there's there at some point in the book, like we've had all kinds of ideas of, uh, you know, Washington doesn't work the way we wish it did, uh, government doesn't work the way we wish it did, and in the latter half of the Bush years, kind of starting from the 9/11 Commission, it became this this kind of trend of, well, by golly, we're going to have a bipartisan commission, and that kind of has turned into the cliche of of, any, of, a, of a politician who's lost and who can't come up with any other good ideas always calls for the appointment of a blue-ribbon commission to study the problem and come back with solutions. And uh, we saw the Iraq study group. We saw bipartisan commissions on Social Security and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, yeah. as you probably gathered from the book, I'm increasingly cynical about this. I, I think generally they're kind of used as a politician who, um, as I said, either can't come up with good ideas themselves or is afraid of coming up with ideas, you know, like, well, I have an entitlement reform idea, but people might not like it, so... <laughs> Let me kick it to this third-party group 
and hope that they uh they'll take the blame for it. Um and and I think it uh you know the the uh, there's a you know the fictional one that kind of comes along in the course of the book is an indicator of um uh, of how usually ineffective those groups are that they 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 issue their reports and their studies to great fanfare but in the end, very little changes uh, in a fundamental way. And Caleb Lyon, I, I really enjoyed writing him. He kind of was this um, naturally heroic figure who's kind of, be, you know, we have a few of them left in life. I think, you know, Colin Powell Fitz is one of them, Norman Schwarzkopf, um, uh, maybe Robert Gates, usually come from the defense area, and they're kind of these respected bipartisan figures. And the thing is, is that once you have a respected bipartisan, you know, uh, you know heroic reputation, you're kind of hesitant to to risk it that much, you know, and, and that jumping into something like, you know, who's to blame for a, a crisis or something, um, kind of, you know, ruins that or kind of, you know, puts you, you, you come down off your pillar uh, and all of a sudden you're, you know, in the muck of things and, and Lion obviously is very resistant to this at first, gets into it and I think he finds the whole process uh, generally frustrating and uh, annoying and, and not, you know, all of his hesitation at the beginning turns out to be pretty well-founded. Mm-hmm. And in the book, um, you do a tremendous job of weaving together real news stories, some semi-fictional news stories, and also pulling in actual historical figures, some of whom are still on the national scene today. Um, so there's a certain Forrest, Forrest Gump-esque kind of feel to that. Um, mm-hmm. How difficult was it to write in that way, and, and what led you to write the book in such a way that you could weave everything together? Sure. Well, it seemed like a good way of kind of showing um, – why things turned out the way they did. And I'm, I'm glad you used the Forrest Gump analogy. Um, I was reading George Stephanopoulos' autobiography of the Clinton years, and he talked about during the government shutdown that they had a meeting with Bob Dole, and Bob Dole kind of during the meeting let slip that, you know, you know, the shutdown's going on, and everybody, the blame game is going on, and the question is who's going to blink. And Bob Dole says, uh, well, one way or another, this has got to get done soon because i got to get up to New Hampshire and start campaigning. This is leading into the 1996 presidential campaign. And Stephanopoulos says he nearly spat up the cookie he was chewing because he's like, he, he just told him, well, oh, this is what I'm going to concede. <laughs> you know, I can hold out until I need to, you know, until this date, you know, it's around December. I need to get to New Hampshire next month. So basically, I'm going to fold in X number of days. So he's basically telling the White House, if you hold out until then, I'll give you what you want. Um, and I read this and I was kind of, my jaw dropped. I was like, oh, if you ever wonder like why Republicans lost the government shutdown fight of late 95, early 96, this is it. Bob Dole needed to run for president. And from that, you know, I mean, after the government shutdown, Republicans weren't too eager to get into a really tough spending fight uh, with the Clinton administration. And so I have my characters literally hiding behind a curtain, overhearing all this, um, and kind of, you know, so this is my way of kind of inserting them into the story, but also saying to readers, if you've ever wondered why, you know, the, the, the Gingrich class of 94 kind of lost its steam, in terms of trying to cut government spending, this was a big part of it. And um, some little examples like that were kind of fun. Uh, a lot of people so far have reacted to the Al Gore and Newt Gingrich chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, Al, the Al Gore one was, it just kind of, I just kind of, I'm talking about the process of writing, and sometimes sometimes you sit and you think, and you try to come up with an idea, and you, you experiment with something, and it doesn't work. The Gore one was one where I just wrote Al Gore, I'll just say, as a not entirely human creature. <laughs> and I kind of decided, kind of like Mad Magazine or The Naked Gun, everyone would treat it like it was perfectly normal. No one would say, hey, wait a minute, this seems right. And I just wrote the scene that way, and it just worked tremendously. And, and it's hysterically funny. And while well, on the one hand, 
we're talking about why Al Gore's reinventing government initiative never really did that much of a significant change in the way government spends its money. Uh, in the meantime, you're kind of laughing because people have said it, you know, um, this somewhat science fiction explanation <laughs> for why Al Gore speaks and behaves the way he does um, just strikes them as very plausible. Uh, and that, that's the great revelation of the book, basically, right there. Um, and the Newt Gingrich one, um, this is the one where, I, you know, at, at some point I wonder if, you know, Newton Callista will throw a rock through my window or something like that. Um, but basically, I, I kind of had set up, you know, so the, the idea, Newt has always had two sides to him. Uh, on the one hand, I don't think you can say, this, is, this man is a conservative. This, this, you know, it's not like you can say, oh, Newt Gingrich is a rhino or something like that. Um, but Newt also has kind of this futurist side of him, and he believes in Alvin Toffler and fascinated by technology and, and things like that. So it just kind of seemed natural that when the you know, when a government agency that was on the chopping block needed to say to Newt Gingrich, no, no, we're worth keeping around, um, they would, you know, up, uh, you know, sell themselves to this aspect of Newt's personality. And in fact, I kind of love that chapter because you can see all the little ways that they're trying to flatter Gingrich's ego and they're desperately trying to find a dinosaur bone to put on a desk because they know he likes dinosaurs and stuff like that. Like, all these little things kind of play to his ego and play to him and kind of say, no, no, we're just like you. We're, we're, we're exactly the kind of program you would love. Um, and rather than being a terribly negative uh, portrait of... Uh, uh, of Newt Gingrich, I actually, you know, he hits it off with my protagonist Ava, because uh, she too is kind of a, a, you know, head in the clouds, uh, dreamer of what technology could do. Um, and in fact, I kind of, you know, I kind of thought it just kind of fits, you know, so that you know, my my liberal government can do wonderful things character kind of develops a little bit of a crush on Newt Gingrich. That you know, all of a sudden they kind of speak the same language to each other and stuff. And so, but the the upshot of all this is that this program that uh, Nick Botter and other folks were desperately, you know, trying to get rid of. Newt's not so eager to get rid of. It's got potential. They have this technological idea that sounds exciting, and uh, it gets spared again to live the fight another day. And lo and behold, uh, you know, once again, the weed eliminates getting uh, getting plucked from the garden. Yeah, and incidentally, I thought the Gingrich chapter was hilarious, and I think, frankly, if you it probably if you asked Newt, he would probably laugh about it too. I mean, yeah, I know he was frank and profound and fundamental. <laughs> So kind of, exactly. yeah, he was also making, yeah, having fresh come off the uh, New Gingrich presidential campaign coverage, you kind of, there are certain little verbal ticks and notice, you start to notice and things like that and his, you know, historical references and, and things like that. So, uh, it's kind of a fun way to play with all the things about Newt that I would say I mock with love. I hope he takes it the same way. We'll see how it plays out. And, um, you, you mentioned reading Stephanopoulos' book. Um, and I had read Stockman's book recently, um, which also it probably takes even a a more, um, you know, sort of disillusioned and disheartened look at, at the way things went in the Reagan White House. Have you received feedback from Stockman, Gingrich, or anyone else, any of the other folks that you sort of roast in the book? Not yet. Um, and I, I guess there's no one's put it in front of them, and uh, I don't know if anyone ever will put it in front of them. The thing on Reagan, I mean, the Reagan is just the, the first chapter there, and I know there are some folks on the right who, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Reagan fan as much as the next guy, and, and I don't, you know, don't put this in there to be, you know, slamming Reagan, but I think it's just safe to say that, you know, when it comes to cutting government, reducing the size of it, and reducing spending, Reagan didn't quite do what I think he set out to do, and I don't think that's, you know, necessarily, you know, that doesn't mean he's a failure, it just means that as time went by, uh, winning the Cold War and the conflict with the Soviets took more and more time and energy um, of both the president, I think, you know, particularly a man who got shot and who was uh, up in years and was going to have a limited amount of time and energy to go through the day, um, and also of his administration. And now, look, 
when you win the Cold War, I, I think you rank among one of the all-time great accomplishments in American history. And so I don't say this to, you know, uh, slam the Reagan presidency, but just kind of observe that um, that priority kind of slid down there. And a couple lines in there about how, you know, Botter's feeling good that, well, yeah, you know, they're going to have to, you know, Reagan has drawn a hard line on deficit, so that won't be a problem. And I think it's safe to say that <laughs> the Reagan years, we didn't do such a great job of keeping the deficits down. I mean, they look small compared to the Obama years. Um, but that was an area where, where you know, a, a conservative Republican president didn't quite live up to our um, ideals and expectations. And, uh, you know, it shows that, you know, a good example, you know, if the most naturally charismatic and beloved and effective communicating president um, of my lifetime and maybe maybe several lifetimes couldn't do this, it gives you a sense of the enormity of the challenge for any Republican president to come. Right, and the U.S. was in a lot better shape back then than we are today. Yeah, yeah, so. Um, now, jumping back into the, the juicier stuff, are, are there is there one or, or two examples of uh, your favorite sort of bureaucratic shenanigans from the book? I mean, I know you mentioned the 9-11, um, which sort of brought to mind, like, you know, LBJ on the airplane flying back after, you know, after Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, are there any one or two that are your favorites from the book? Oh, I, I, I guess one of the things, when I, when I started the book, there's a reference to something called the Washington Monument Strategy. Um, and that basically we came back to, you know, years and years ago fighting over, I think it was the Department of Interior budget. And somebody wanted to make a cut to it, and the response from the Department of Interior was, well, if you make that cut, we're going to have to shut down the Washington Monument. Oh, no, no, don't, well, we can't have that. Oh, my goodness. No, no, no. And they, so the cuts get restored. Uh, the funding gets restored, and, um, you know, because the Department of Interior said that any cut in their budget would mean they'd have to shut down the single most popular thing that they do, uh, that the cut gets, you know, kiboshed and they get, they get rid of it. We saw this during the government shutdown of, uh, you know, of, of last year. We see this from the Obama administration all the time, sequestration and stuff like that. That if you have to cut anything, your first explanation is to say, well, we have no choice but to cut the single most popular thing we do in an effort to get the public, you know, very upset and writing their congressman, how dare you make these cuts? You know, you're, you're supposed to cut fat, not bone marrow. And what it is is that, you know, obviously these agencies, you know, if, if, if somebody, put, you know, let's emphasize metaphorically, metaphorically puts a gun to their head, um, they, they could find 2% of their budgets to cut. In fact, I think you look back and they, they concluded from the government shutdown um, and sequestration, only, you know, one person lost their job. And in some recent study, I think it was the GAO. And what it is is that, you know, when you tell a government agency, well, you got to cut your budget by, you know, some small percentage, they all move around money so that they don't have to have layoffs because naturally they don't want people to lose their jobs. And that's a you know, perfectly natural human instinct of that. Um, so when they really have to, they can find waste uh, to cut out and things like that. So the Washington Monument strategy, when I first started writing this book, was a little bit of a more obscure concept. And I think during the, uh, the shutdown of last fall, we saw it with you know, the, the Park Service shutting down the open-air World War II museums and, and things like that. Um, the idea of like this, this theater of showcasing, oh, oh, spending has gotten, you know, our, our budget's gotten so tight, we have no choice but to do these sorts of things, um, which is obviously very dishonest and very um, used a way of obscuring spending choices instead of uh, trying to, you know, spotlight them. Look, you know, we could cut the budget a little bit by getting rid of the, uh, uh, the stuff we don't need instead of the stuff we do need, and most people would say monuments and museums and good stuff like that represent, you know, good spending. Mm -hmm. And so uh, at, at the end of the day, in the final analysis, um, 
what is the moral of the story in your view? And, you know, I, not to give away the ending uh, when we actually put this in the transcript, but, you know, on the one hand, there's sort of a, ver- a victory, but there's also the bureaucratic status quo that remains. So what's the moral? And then do you see a scenario in which we ever do choose to starve the beast of the government? Yeah. Um, early, you know, when I was, I was writing this, I had a good ideas, and I didn't have a terribly clear ending. Um, I, I guess you could say I had one ending idea that would work very well if Romney had won, and then the American electorate denied me the ending I was looking for. Um, so, but so um, at one point, my my you know editors were saying, well, well, could the, could the agency get cut, or could there, you know, you know, I said, well, well, I'm writing a satire, not a fantasy. <laughs> not science fiction, you know. It's got you know, the, the world I'm portraying has to look something like the world. You know, and then magic unicorns come down from the sky and cut the budget or something. So, um, so I mean, it, it couldn't involve that. There's a little bit more of you could say a personal comeuppance or consequence for these characters, uh, but not at the you know grand national budgetary level. I, I do think that as time goes by more and more Democrats are starting to recognize that the basic structure of the way the federal workforce operates isn't serving anybody well, except maybe, you know, some of the employees themselves. And even then, I think a lot of federal employees are actually frustrated with this culture of complacency within their offices, particularly the younger ones. Um, I think they go, I think young people go to the government because they want to make a difference, because they want to do something. They know the pay is not great, but the benefits are. And they know the job security is pretty darn good compared to the private sector, don't go to the. You don't go to work for most federal agencies because you want to make because you want to be rich. You know, it's not Wall Street. So mm-hmm. there, there's there's some. You know, I think we have some allies within the government. I think there are some people who like to see the place get a little more efficient, and a little more accountable. When people screw up, you know, either get rid of them or or demote them or or have some sort of more significant consequence there. Um, because if you look at it, most of the biggest failures of the Obama administration are, in fact, failures of the bureaucracy. They, they set up recovery.gov, and they say, you know, every penny we spend is going to be on there, and then it turns out the, the site ends up full of bad data. Um, healthcare.gov is kind of a spectacular example of it. I mentioned the VA. Um, you know, I, I don't think there are that many Democrats who would like to say, who, who would, you know, proudly say uh, big fancy conferences at Las Vegas, uh, uh, at Las Vegas luxury hotels are a good way to spend taxpayer dollars. You know, I, I think there are enough of them who say, no, no, we don't really need that. Um, that's not a good way of doing it. And so I, I think there are some reformers in the Democratic Party. And I think the more you see big Democratic ideas, you know, crashing on the rocks because the, the bureaucracy couldn't move fast enough or wasn't responsive enough, or in some cases like the VA, which is flat out dishonest, um, they will be a little more open to the idea of, okay, uh, we really have kind of let this, uh, uh, like I said, the culture of complacency um, create a, a you know, where our, our government institutions just don't work the way they're supposed to. Um, and that hopefully you'll get a, a better, um, you know, that, that you've got to have, a, you know, you got to change the culture, different leaders, different management, and ultimately probably different hiring and firing rules within the federal government, which will be a tough, tough fight. Um, the other thing also, I just kind of have a last point to note, is that the good news is, is that the bigger and clearer the consequences are, generally the better a government agency performs. Um, the CDC is generally not sloppy about leaving smallpox samples out <laughs> where little kids can grab them and stuff. Um, the military generally, they send guys out in the field to fight. The guns work and stuff like that. So if the consequences are life and death, generally people are pretty good at their jobs. They, they, they kind of, you know, that, that forces diligence and accountability. And, and um, If the consequences are just that, eh, you know, the, the paperwork moves slower, 
um, you know, we don't respond to that request as quickly as we would ordinarily, um, then, you know, then you do have this culture of complacency and, you know, we'll get to it eventually and things like that. So I think that, um, you know, maybe we need some of the departments of, you know, commerce and labor and USDA and things like that to look at places like uh, the Pentagon and the FBI and, you know, other parts of the government that do work pretty efficiently. Um, and, you know, they work a little more efficiently because they have to, because if they don't, people will die. Mm-hmm. And uh, last last question for you, and appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me about this. Um, <clears throat> do you have any plans for any further books on sort of inside baseball in Washington? Because my take from this book is, like you said, you take a you take a concept like the bureaucracy, make it humorous, and put in some human elements to it. You can deal with this topic in a way that's actually enjoyable and kind of lighthearted. So, do you have any plans for any other similar books, or, or even trying to push for this to be a movie? It, uh, I'd, obviously, I'd love to see you know the Weed Agency, the TV series, and the Weed Agency or the Weed Agency, the movie. Uh, if you're interested in the rights, please contact my agent Mel Berger at the William Morris Agency. Um, I, I do think that there's a uh, there's potential there. I, I I don't know. I guess you could say ideas are percolating. I don't think it would be precisely uh, these characters or this agency or something like that. But I think there is kind of um, this format. I felt like it served me well. The feedback has been pretty darn good so far, and I do kind of like just the concept of uh, of kind of you know, just looking at big institutions through the eyes of the people who are working in it. Sometimes through the eye at the very bottom of the level, sometimes at the very top, and oftentimes somewhere in the middle, and, uh, you know, kind of looking at it through the human lens as opposed to the um, wonky policy lens. It was This is you know, very different from writing at a campaign spot, and I really kind of enjoyed it, and, you know, hopefully we'll have uh, some more of this in my future.